Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of No Name Crypto Podcast. Joining me, as always, is Ben Sharp. But Ben, we have some guests today. So this is a special episode. It's a very, very special episode. We actually have two guests, uh, so that's a record. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, happy to introduce two gentlemen, Dominic Marino, who's a, a senior solutions architect, and John Gleason, who's the chief operating officer, both with Storage. This is a, a connection that we made uh, after episode four, uh, when we interviewed Zach Cohen from Filebase uh, about decentralized storage, and, uh, and Dominic was awesome and reached out via Twitter, and, uh, and we've chatted a couple times since then. So we thought it would be great to have these guys on and just share you know, another, another cool project in the, in the crypto decentralized storage space. And, and so, yeah, John, Dominic, who, who wants to start out and just kind of give everybody a 30,000 foot of of what storage is and uh, and what you guys are working on, and then we can kind of dive in and uh, you know get more more into the weeds. Why don't I kick this one off and just give the uh, the high level overview? So think of storage labs as a drop in replacement for Amazon's S3 storage. So we're a cloud storage project, just like any other, with the big difference that instead of building data centers and filling them full of hard drives and servers, we're more like the Airbnb of hard drives. We make software that anyone can run and share space with the network. We aggregate it and make it available to developers to store data. And we are uh, currently building what is the equivalent of the world's largest data center, but without ever owning our own hard drives or, uh, or racking any servers. And so we have a variety of customers who are storing data on the uh, decentralized platform today. And it's really exciting to, to share what's new in, in crypto and how mainstream users are taking advantage of what we do. That's awesome. Dom, would you like to add anything at all? or? I always like to jump in and, and just add one of the things I'm particularly proud about this network is that it's it's a clean sheet, right? So a lot of storage providers are working within the bounds that they grew up in, that they learned, right? You have a finite amount of enclosures in your data center. You stripe across so many desks. And because we were able to throw it all away and start from the beginning, I, I always talk about in pursuits, you know, we're not really competing with a lot of existing providers because we're so fundamentally different leading to the trifecta so we're very fast because of the concept of parallelism we're very reliable because of the fact that the data is erased and coded across so many different disks thus we give you 11 nines of durability which is you can go back and forth on numbers but it's like 16 copies of your data it, it, enough you could call it enough and then at that because latent capacity is being brought to the it's incredibly affordable, comically inexpensive. So yeah, that's a fun primer. Good intro, John. So let's 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 dive in there a little bit. So I'm I'm obviously familiar, and I, I think most listeners will be familiar with how the web is manifested with the the, the biggies out there, right? So you've got Microsoft running Azure, uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, Google's cloud services, and, and and they've run around the world over the last you know two decades, basically building data centers. Where, where power is cheap and, and in an effort to get the data sort of like relatively close. And I know, Dom, you've got a lot of knowledge on all of, all of this, I guess. So, so my, my first question is, you know, it's, it seems, you know, it seems pretty, pretty interesting that you've been able to build this, this solution, this network with very little capex, right? Very little expenditures. Certainly, you know, you don't have to wait for the construction crews to finish these data centers, right? So, I mean, how have you made it, how, how have you been able to do that? 
And and what is what is sort of novel about about your approach? And so, so let's let's just kind of start there. Sure. What I'd like to do is highlight the two ways you can interact with our network. I think it's an important primer to build on this conversation. So we offer two ways of you interacting with the network. Uh, this is from a moderate to high level. So for instance, if you want to use the S3 protocol, which most of the world does today, most Web2 opportunities want to use, you need a gateway. So much like Zach had noted, they offer gateways. Well, we also offer S3 compatible gateways uh, located in POPs around the globe that allow you to change nothing yet get most of the advantages, I highlight most, of a Web3 storage stack. That is the decentralization, so resiliency and a lot of the performance. But of course, you don't have to change a thing. The other thing that's very important to note is that you can actually natively integrate with, with the network. You can run our libraries or bindings. You can run our executable locally within your environment. And then you're directly talking to those nodes without ever using an edge. So the fascinating thing there is if you're an S3 user, right? And you upload in New York and you download in New York, you would expect good performance, yes? But if you're an S3 user and you upload in New York, and then let's just say you call your friend in Tokyo and you say download it. Well, that's really far, has a lot of hops. It's a speed of light problem. And you're going to get, to be frank, abysmal performance, right? What do you do today? Well, today you have a replication policy, meaning you make a copy and you make a copy to a bucket in Tokyo at twice the price, plus the fee of moving that data between regions, plus the fact that you had to know how to do it. So it's complicated and it's expensive. So if you're using our network natively, which is the default for which we will you know, go back to in the discussion, that closest pop is, is you. You're the CDN endpoint, literally you, your computer. So you're going to pull that data back from the closest nodes to you. Thus, you're going to get incredible consistency. Um, my apologies if I wandered off the question slightly, but I, I hope that's a good overview of how to think about accessing the network. Yeah, no, no problem at all. And an observation I think I shared with you guys when we talked a few weeks ago was, you know, I live in the Seattle area on the Xbox. You know, every time I go to use the Xbox, there's some update that it needs to install. And of course, my kids are angry with me having to wait. And I'm always shocked. You know, I've got a gigabit connection, you know, always bought the best routers, and you know, to try to maximize performance. And I'm always just kind of blown away how slow the internet is. You know, I mean, if, if I take a step back for a second, it's laggy, you know, latency issues. And then, and then under the, this example, right, like, you know, I'm getting maybe 50, 60 megabits per second. And I mean, Microsoft's right in my backyard, right? I mean, philosophically speaking. So I'd never really thought about kind of how slow the internet really is with kind of few exceptions. And so it just, you know, it was, it was kind of an interesting epiphany that, yeah, I think that there's really like probably a 10x, you know, sort of opportunity to, to increase uh, the performance on the, on the internet, you know, fetching files and doing those kinds of things, streaming. So, so yeah, I mean, it makes sense getting, getting the data closer to you and doing it in a way. In a, in a way. So I, you mentioned it's more performant than Amazon Web Services or, or some of the others. How, 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 have you, how have you built this such that it can be, you know, so performant when you've got bits and bobs of this data, you know, laying all over the place? Like, how does that, how do you guys make that happen? What's the magic? I love it. So let me think of the best way to answer this. So the best way to answer this is to start with where are we performing and what is the test? So you would never want to race Amazon within a 
uh, compute environment. That is like literally a physical data center. I mean, if you can mm -hmm. see the hard drives, it's going to be quite fast, you would presume. So let's talk about a more general use case where you're somewhere and your data is somewhere else, right? Just anything where you can't actually throw a baseball and hit the storage device from your computer. Well, what we do is we break data up into little pieces. We use something called read Solomon erasure encoding. That is, if I recall an algorithm from the 60s, it's used on your CD-ROMs, right? So if you scratch them, you can still read the data. And it's used in commonly. I did not know that. Yeah, rate array. So for instance, we create additional parity when you upload something to the network. Uh, simply put, simply put, when you upload a 64 meg file to the network, we're going to use that size because that's one block on our network. Mm -hmm. We break it into 80 pieces of which you only need 29 of those pieces to get your file back. So if we extrapolate that to a larger file, well, a gig file is going to be 16, 64 meg pieces. And I know we're getting more complex, but the long story short is that you can simply ask for all of it back at the same time. Now, as you highlighted then, the internet is slow. And if we visualize the internet as a spider web, there are all these different routers and paths that can be taken. Right. So when you ask for your data back, well, if you ask for data from an HTT endpoint without using a tool to paralyze it, you're getting one stream of data. It's one lane on a highway. But when you download something with storage, you could configure parallelism that would result, and this depends on your network, this depends on your compute capability, but reasonably hundreds of parallel connections, all coming from different networks, all coming through different routers thus balancing out to an incredible throughput. So today we have a streaming customer that's doing well north of 200,000 high definition video streams a day directly from storage with no optimization. And that's even somewhat viral content. I'm gonna stop short of saying, you know, it's the latest viral video, but some of the content's very hot that is in high demand. And thus, our network design is able to cope with that because if one node's busy, it just goes to the next one. More opportunity for all the node providers, which is fantastic. But accessing via a parallel means, I'll close on this analogy. Some of us that are old enough used LimeWire, used Napster, mm -hmm. right? So this is a loose analogy. I need to stress that. But imagine if that seed, that person holding that song you're downloading, imagine if they were incentivized to give it back to you to have a good hard drive, to have a great network connection. Imagine that there was an economy that supported that. In addition to the tech to say, grab all the pieces at the same time, that in the end results in incredible throughput. That's very interesting. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I heard a couple of things. One was the 64 meg minimum size. Is that like the min size of files you can have on it? It isn't. Uh, think of the block size on the network as a big, clear tote, a tote that you hold that you can fill up with up to 64 megs of data. It does not mean we bill you for that. We only bill you for the data you commit to the network at $4 per terabyte. The additional note on that is for every segment that appears on the network, we charge five zeros, eight, eight cents per segment, which works out to for every million 64 meg or smaller object that you put on the network, it's $8.80 per month. So uh, John may have a better way of explaining that, but in the end, we charge an almost imperceivable object fee to store that metadata per segment. 
John, is there anything you want to add there to explain that number a little bit more eloquently? Sure. I mean, the uh, the idea there is that with all of those pieces on the network, it feels very complex, right? I'm uploading a one gig file and it's stored as, as 1,200, 1,300 different pieces that I have to upload and download. And what what ends up happening is there's actually a, there's servers on the network called satellites and they keep track of all those little tiny pieces so that as a, as a user, you just upload a file, you download a file, just like you would with any other product. In the background, the software is doing all of the erasure coding for you, all of the, uh, the finding of the pieces, but the satellites are keeping track of those pieces and they have a lot of metadata associated with that. And so this is a way to offset the cost of that on the network. So that incentivization makes sure that everybody's doing the right thing at the right time and keeping track of all those pieces is, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, when you look at the other services, some services do a minimum object fee, some of them do a uh, per transaction fee with APIs. There's just different ways to cover the expensive pieces of things that go in the background in addition to storage or retrieval. This just happens to be ours. Got it. So if I have like a four meg image, then I can still go store a four meg image and retrieve a four meg image without having to retrieve the whole block. Correct. Correct. Okay. And that, that four meg image is going to be stored as 80 pieces and you need any 29 of those pieces to get it back. And once you get above 64 meg, then it's just broken into two segments. So then it's 64 pieces for the first segment, or I'm sorry, 80 pieces for the first 64 meg segment, 80 pieces for the next segment. And every increment of 64 is another 80 pieces. And that's what results in all that parallelism that Dom is talking about. You can bring those 64 meg pieces and their little pieces within them all at the same time. And that throughput lets you get around those sort of slow nodes uh, or, or the slowest possible connection on the network. You're just simply going around it. So John, on, on that on that comment, I have a question. So who, what, what is the sort of profile of a node operator? I mean, is it a guy like me running a laptop at home or is this, you know, someone that's got a data center someplace and they've got a couple extra boxes hanging up? There are, uh, there are prosumer home users who have really good internet connections, particularly in Europe. And then there are data center operators as well. We have a really wide range of, of different people. What we don't have is laptops, unfortunately. So anything that is that isn't high uptime, that isn't on all the time, that's not going to make a good node because you do need to be able to have that that high performance. And so the overwhelming majority of our, our nodes are either prosumers or, or data center operators. And the nodes that tend to earn the most tend to have uh, actually the, the fastest network connection. So it's not about the processor, right? Most of the nodes can be as something as simple as a Raspberry Pi you know, very low power compute, wow. but fast internet and, and high throughput is something that the network really loves. And aggregating all that throughput for that parallelism, again, that's where, where the sweet spot is in terms of the performance. Okay, awesome. Thank you. So I, I had another question. So Dom was mentioning, you know, let's say a super hot viral video or something, and, you know, it's spread across, you know, a bunch of different node operators, I guess, depending on the size of the file. I, I'm just kind of curious, like, for really popular, you know, in-demand files, do you guys dynamically adjust the number of node operators to sort of ensure that there's throughput or like, how do you manage that? Because I, I was thinking like, even let's say, you know, the 64 megabyte file is split across 80 different nodes, I think you said, of which you only need 29 to, you know, regenerate the file. But I'm just curious if, that, if, if that's a very in-demand file for whatever reason, is is that something you guys will say, okay, let's let's 10x the number of node operators for this file, you know, during a high demand spike or sort of like, how do you optimize for that? Well, we don't do that dynamic optimization today. Okay. Well, so 
what we find is that the network is uh, has a fairly massive amount of of um, available bandwidth, and we haven't had anyone who has his sort of hit that threshold in the categories of people we, we're seeing today. And we're seeing you know good small to mid sized video streaming companies. You know, a couple hundred thousand streams a day is is yep. is good size, but it, it has turned out to be surprisingly unnecessary. Okay. That's one of Dom's favorite phrases. That it's surprisingly unnecessary. And we find two things. One is for, for the volumes that we're using, the customers who turn to us actually have a much less complex implementation because they're able to get by with one copy of their data in, in stored once as opposed to having to regionalize that data and distribute it manually because, and, and increment their, their, their storage costs to get uniform performance around the globe. And two, we're able to actually reduce the amount of usage of CDNs. And so customers who have streaming services ultimately put a CDN out just in case of that viral content. And that's really today the best and highest use of the CDN is to protect you from content that, that exceeds the capacity of your network. And so we have customers who will stand up a, uh, a CDN for hot files, but their actually utilization of that uh, CDN becomes much, much lower than when they're using another service. And so overall, <laughs> it becomes you know, a consistent, high-performing service at a much lower cost point. And uh, Dom, I don't know if you want to sort of add another layer of, uh, of sort of interest to that. I, I do. I love surprisingly unnecessary because frankly, it was. So when we talk about virality and the fact that, that uh, our largest streaming use case uh, actually completely eliminated the concept of the CDN, which is a further complication, a further point of exposure, a, a further five-figure bill per month, eliminating that was highly effective for the bottom line. When we talk about virality and forward-looking statements, so I do want to, to be clear there, this is a constant conversation. We run labs internally with multi-hundred gigabit connections to the internet and up to today, 128 CPU cores to abuse the network. I want to know what the limit is before you do, right? So we're constantly challenging each other internally to build the most robust and performant emphasis on performance here in network. And today we're seeing levels that push back the conversation. Like what does it mean to be a CDN? What would we need to develop and deliver to become a CDN? Not be CDN-like, but to truly eliminate it at scale. And those conversations are happening within our product, our development, our creative teams. Uh, and we're always looking forward, you know, that next six months, that next 12 months, that next two years, where we can take this tech and dynamic, uh, dynamically changing the read Solomon erasure coding uh, ratios, for instance, to add throughput capability is most certainly a conversation that we've had. Very cool. Awesome. Thank, thanks for that, guys. So is there a particular use that you guys are optimizing your technology for? I mean, is it for, you know, storing JPEGs or streaming or is, is there is there anything that's, you know, that because I think what what came up in our last discussion with Zach was that you know, there's there's a number of different companies operating in this decentralized storage space, and you know, each one is sort of focusing on you know a specific kind of niche use case. How do you guys respond to that? Is there anything in particular that you're really optimizing for, or is it just you know sort of general storage and just just you know being able to sort of supplant the existing kind of Web two centralized technologies out there? It's simply what we're good at. Naturally, what we're good at. Don't fight what feels organic. So, for instance. We started building a very robust 
That is uh, the distribution, the decentralization made for a very reliable network. You can come to us, you can store your data, and you can be confident that if you lose a continent, literally, or a country, your data is still available, which is a significant statement, right? Pick your continent. Everything's okay. Actually, nothing's okay. But your data is fine. So that being said, what is it good for? Well, we discovered that it that it actually, you know, it was good at storing data. It, we've never lost a file. It was very resilient at, at keeping data. But we've found some alignment recently to the returning, the egress, the retrieval of data. That is that streaming use case. So when we were first building V1 and V2 of the network, the first thought of the engineer's mind was not, we're going to be really great at displacing some CDN utilization, at delivering high definition video globally, at delivering updates for uh, you know software updates or distributing ROMs or, or what have you. But what we found is that it works so well and our ability to offer it at a low cost has led to market adoption, right? That that's been a, a focus, let's just say more sales side. As far as the engineering perspective, it's continue to find product market fit, iterate and improve. But I want to emphasize there hasn't been a Herculean effort here. Uh, since we've implemented parallelism, it's really just work. It's fundamentally that good of a design. John, taking it over to you. Yeah, one thing I would add is that distributed storage, irrespective of whether it's it's our, our species of distributed storage, is generally better for larger files. It's more efficient in that storage. And so when you combine sort of just the natural affinity for storing big data uh, or bigger bigger objects and then uh, the high capacity for, for egress, you get these really great use cases that Dom was describing, right? So it's just a really nice natural fit. Like customers who have big files, video streaming, software updates, software ROMs for distribution, and they're downloading them lots and lots of times over a very large geographic area. Like that's the sort of thing where the network is really okay. perfect at that. Okay. And it's, it's, it's also very competitive because the biggest expense in, in storage is, isn't the storing of the data, it's that egress fee. And yep. that's, that's where customers switch and save a lot of money too. So, so speaking of that, I'm kind of just curious, who are sort of the first adopters in the, in the Web2 world that are starting to use your guys' technology? Can you guys share some use cases? Yeah, we can share a, a couple of these. So we're seeing a couple of, of different things in the uh, higher education space for storing of, um, of scientific data. So we're working with the uh, University of Edinburgh on the uh, Giroc project. As an early adopter, we have the uh, Harvard uh, Dataverse groups. There's uh, a couple of players in there who are storing data. For example, Simit uh, is storing um, crop genomic data in, uh, in Mexico. And then we're also seeing some early adopters on the video streaming side. And so a number of the projects that we've seen lately, uh, one of our partners, uh, Innovo Solutions, is, uh, is, is delivering uh, OTT video from a, a number of different projects. One of the most interesting ones is uh, a project called God Behind Bars, where God Behind Bars is a, uh, a streaming service that actually delivers religious uh, sermons and religious content to uh, prisoners all over the world to help them, oh. you know, better themselves and, and, and help with, uh, you know, their, their spiritual uh, work. So these are, these are sort of smaller and mid-sized platforms and some of them quite large that, that have started out with looking for alternative solutions to, to sort of hit that performance curve. And so um, we did a, a webinar with, uh, with uh, Professor Nitin and Portelli 
from University of Edinburgh uh, earlier this year, and it was specifically around taking these large scientific data sets and being able to store them and share them efficiently and further the scientific discovery by making those data sets more available. And that's the, the work we're doing in that space. So I don't know if, if there are other, uh, other projects or customers that you wanted to highlight, Don. I love working with the Internet Archive. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I was amazing. hoping you'd mention that because you, uh, I think you told me about that in our last discussion. And I oh, thought boy. that was really that, fascinating. So we, do you mind uh, elaborating on that a little bit? Yeah, so a shout out to, cool. uh, to our, our Cotty, uh and Wendy over at the Internet Archive who have been fantastic to work with Brewster as well. We've been helping them realize their, I mean, frankly, dreams of decentralizing a lot of uh, humanities treasures that they have archived. So they run four data centers, I believe coming on five data centers now, uh, where they're archiving literally everything called humanities treasures, right? And we've worked with them backing up the LibriVox media collection. It's uh, open source books, open source authors uh, can be freely distributed as well as the NASA video archives. Uh, we look forward to working on more projects with them. And uh, to be clear, the reason why we've been so successful working with them is that we have the ability to deliver content, not just archive. It's very interesting. Like, what volume of data are we talking about? Can you give us some examples? At the Internet Archive, um, at the oh, I need to, to remember off the top of my head. It, it's in the 20s of terabytes for each collection, if I recall. Ultimately, I'm sure we'll, we'll end up archiving far more data with them. As far as total uh, amounts of data, the network is, is, uh, is in the petabyte size, uh, tens of petabyte size. Question, when you're having all of this data, uh, some of the data can be questionable, objectionable. Like, how do you deal with regulations around that? Yeah, so it, it really doesn't matter whether it's, it's kind of a Web 2 or a Web 3 storage story, if you have someone who is accepting money to store data, you're going to be subject to to the rules and regulations related to data, right? So you're going to have to be able to respond to DCMA takedown notices. You're going to have to 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 be able to understand what's going on with, with truly illegal and horrible content. And the unfortunate thing is if, if you're a cloud storage provider, ultimately you are going to get some of that. And we've, we've had to respond and we do. And ultimately... The data that's stored on our service is encrypted with encryption keys that we don't have. So we sort of built from the from the first principle of not being in a situation where we wouldn't mine data, but where we can't mine data. And we want to return privacy to the user. And a byproduct of that is that we can't necessarily scan the data that's being stored on our platform. If, however, somebody shares that data in such a way that there's a, a publicly available link to content that is that is illegal or or whatever, and it's tied back to a user account, then we have to respond just like everybody else does. And, and ultimately, services that that try not to respond, a uh, a commercial service is going to to run into a lot of trouble. And we saw some of that with uh, uh, one of the other decentralized projects, the uh, the Sia Skynet folks. That 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 was one of the the major challenges they faced was was content that was. Uh, hosted that then was requested to be taken down. Got it. So if I understand this correct, like it's end-to-end encrypted, you really don't know what it is unless it's publicly shared and the authorities can share that link with you. You wouldn't do anything, but once you know about it, you could comply accordingly. Yeah, and, and the the you there, it's important to, to designate who that is, right? And so within within our network, there's there's different ways you can participate. You can just be a storage node 
share some extra hard drive space, earn money on the network by allowing the network to use it. Or you can run different other components. If someone's run, whoever is running one of those satellites, the satellite is ultimately the piece that that keeps track of where the, where the uh, it's the component in the network that keeps track of where the pieces of objects are. And that's where you can trace back the file. So if it's a storage operated satellite or it's a community operated satellite, the URL to the object will tell you where the pieces are being, the metadata lives. And that metadata, where, where that metadata is being tracked is the place where that file can then be uh, taken down. So if it, if it is a storage operated service, then we would take that, that down. If it's somebody else's satellite, then they would be responsible. Got it. So if, if someone else has operated the satellite, you know, sort of on their own, you know, it's, it's possible that it, they may be located somewhere in a country where you know, they don't care and it may, it may continue to exist. So that, that could, you know, that could be a challenge of, you know, really any decentralized technology, right? Is, is just having someone someplace that, you know, has no incentive to take it down. Yep. Did I understand that correctly? That That's correct. And ultimately it's, it's just a, it, where is the enforcement of the leverage point going to be? And yeah. and so if we want to run a large commercially viable storage service that's suitable for enterprise, then we have to play by, by those rules for, for that service. And presumably a, a majority of sort of content is going to exist from enterprises who want to play by the rules and they'll use, you know, your quote, you know, centralized satellites. And so that, you know, you'll have a a, a rule book and and a means for which to kind of process these takedown requests and all that. Exactly. So, you know, a, mm-hmm. an overwhelming majority is probably a non-issue. Correct. I guess. And yeah, and it's all very transparent in terms of how we handle these things, right? Our privacy policy is 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 crystal clear. Our our, uh, our disclosure section of our website, you know, describes exactly what the limits of of the capabilities are, and you know, sort of w- what our philosophy is in terms of doing doing our our best to not be in the content moderation business or the mm-hmm. content mining business but to be in the secure private performance storage business yeah and let someone else deal with moderating content headache yeah smart i i'm i'm curious has uh, have you guys seen any cool projects uh, or any projects reach out to you you know decentralized social media have you guys is there anything cool you guys have seen that you could share uh, in that front cuz that's that's an area that i think is really fascinating and you know, over the next decade or so, kind of along these themes, you know, that that may be interesting. So I'm just curious what you guys have seen. There's a variety of uh, social networking projects that have launched on our on our network. And, and let's be frank, who's heard of a new social network lately, right? The, the barrier for building a social network is significant. The competition between the behemoths that exist out there uh, you know, well-documented and observed. But uh, actually, a social network just launched on Friday that I'm particularly excited about, and it's the Bula app, B-U-L-A. It launched on iOS. So I'm sure in the uh, in the recap or the notes on this, we can put a link for it. But um, yeah, we're working with a partner that launched the Bula app. It launched on Friday night. We had a bunch of very excited engineers. I'm going to share some of that excitement with you now. You know, looking at all multitudes of graphs on the satellites, on network performance, on latencies, uh, because there was like a cluster of several hundred people downloading, installing, and using, like at the like every you know announce and everyone goes. So what an opportunity for a load test, right? Well, I'm I'm happy to report that Bula launched successfully Friday night. They've got following launches and updates scheduled for uh, every week this month, and we look forward to seeing them ramp. And, uh, what, what, brief, what do they do? What do they do it, real quick? What it's a app? social challenge app. 
I don't want to do it a disservice by saying it's kind of visually like a TikTok, uh, but with much more interaction to a social challenge app. And yeah, they've done a great job and their engineers have been fun to work with. And best part, just the absolute success story thus far. So we're geeked to work with them. Awesome. I, I, I'm also curious, a similar question. I, I've been sort of on the lookout for a, a Dropbox, OneDrive type service that is privacy sort of first focused, right? I mean, I, I you know, I, I've always sort of had an issue with just sort of taking their word for it that, you know, that nobody's accessing my data. Have you guys seen any, any cool projects uh, or talked to anybody that's sort of building around, around that theme? Yeah, there's a, there's a few. So there are different software packages that allow you to bring your own object storage. I believe DriveX is one of them. Uh, Photos Plus is one of them for you know, photos on your phone. You can sign up, bring your own object storage. We, of course, have 150 gig free tier, which is pretty good, right? Sign up for Photos Plus, use that. I love Nextcloud for larger installations. So Nextcloud allows you to literally run your own, dare I say, Google Drive. Okay. sweet sort of thing of bring your own object storage. And, and then of course, this is a direct utilization. So we've all used those different apps out there. My favorite is what I call the ducks. So CyberDuck and Mountain Duck. So for instance, you, for your case, Ben, you, you might be backing up like lots of podcast episodes, right? Lots of raw content that you don't want to get rid of that lives on a hard drive on your desk right now, which is scary. Mm-hmm. So you could just install Mountain Duck, which would in Windows, mount us as a drive letter and it would operate a cache so that you know it would feel very natural like it's local storage but it would all sync to the cloud so depending on how much of a prosumer you are you can use a very managed photos plus like solution right so less technical need or you could install one of these software uh, packages uh, of which there are a multitude that allow you to mount object storage as a drive letter and just forget we even exist that is really cool. Th- thanks for that. I wrote all those down. That's that's pretty sweet. I'm gonna have to check this out. Actually, that last one, uh, Mountain Duck, is stuff that I've actually been looking for for a while. So that's I love Mountain sweet. Duck. Uh, so oh, they it's get good stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Well, that's uh, yeah. Now 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 we're getting in the weeds a little bit here. Uh, Ben's geeking out, but no, that's and so when you say bring your own object storage, these products are architected in such a way that you can just plug in different storage providers into. So you guys are one, or you could use somebody else if you had an affinity to that or, or whatever, right? Is that kind of, that's kind that of- That's accurate. Very cool. So, all right. So now, now the, the next question, you know, token models, how do I use this? So let's let's say I've done this, right? I, I put Mountain Duck on my machine. I've selected storage as my uh, object storage provider of choice. How the heck do I sign up and use your service? Is there, I mean, is this like web two? Do I have to go buy tokens and- pull my hair out doing that? What, how do I use this, guys? Yeah, we, we make it really easy, right? So we see ourselves as sort of that web two to web three bridge and all the data, all the workloads, all the money and, and all the savings for customers is largely in, in web two today. And so we tried to build an experience that's very familiar to users to get them to try web three in a way that feels very web two. But then okay. if they want to get more out of it, then they can get more and more into Web3. And, and so the, the, the account signup is just as easy, right? So you go to, a, to storage.io if you want to use one of our satellites. You can just click sign up. You can create an account on a storage satellite. And you can either just start with the free tier 
and get 150 gigs of storage and bandwidth a month. And if you like that, awesome. And you want to get more, then you can either swipe a credit card or you can use tokens to pay for it. And so you, and you can change at any point in time that you want. And so when you add a credit card, it automatically bumps your limits, just like with any other service. But when you pay with token, you actually get 10% more uh, storage utility for your dollar of, okay. of storage token paid. So we do have a little bit of an extra incentive there for people to try, you know, sort of get in there with your with your Web2 and your credit card, but then try the extra added privacy and, and get the extra storage using storage token. Very cool. So, so John, would you mind just kind of giving an overview of the tokenomics um, and sort of how that how that all works. I mean, I'm assuming to start when someone buys, you know, the storage with a credit card, tokens are burned. I mean, can you, but can you just kind of like, you know, go into the tokenomics, kind of how that all works? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is a really straightforward two-sided economy. And so there's the, uh, the storage token is a utility token and it's designed to sort of work inside of our ecosystem to help transfer value between the people who are making their hard drives in their data centers and homes available for usage and the developers who are taking advantage of that space or applications that are storing data on the service. And so with the, with the current network distribution today, there's about 15,500-ish storage nodes running in about 100 different countries being operated by about 9,000 different unique people's, people and companies. And so every month, there are the, uh, the, the utilization metrics there, the way we, we pay for this is that we pay for people uh, for the actual storage and bandwidth utilized. And so if somebody's got a eight terabyte hard drive that's plugged into a Raspberry Pi and we're using three quarters of it, great. They're going to get paid in storage token, $1.50 a terabyte every month for the actual storage capacity used. In addition to that, we also pay for the bandwidth, the egress bandwidth that gets used and also for the egress bandwidth that's used as part of the audit process. So there's an ongoing audit that's going on in the background where the services are making sure that the storage nodes are storing the pieces they're supposed to be storing. If a node fails or goes offline and takes some pieces with it, the system in the background is able to repair those pieces and put them back on healthy nodes without ever having access to the data in the wild. It's repaired in its encrypted state. And then when developers are storing data, they can either pay in credit card where they, they pay USD to the operator of a satellite, and then that operator of the satellite either uses tokens out of their inventory or buys tokens at any one of the 30 or 40 exchanges that support storage token. And we're on all the majors, um, Coinbase, Kraken, Binance US, Binance Overseas, Gemini, everything that you would, you would find the normal uh, tokens, uh, you can get them there. It's very easy to, to acquire them. And then you can use those to either pay the satellite and then the satellite then takes a cut and pays the storage nodes, or they can just pay tokens directly and then the, the token transfer goes through. And so it's just you pay in tokens to use the network and then the satellite then is sort of that tracking access management, tracking utilization, and sort of collecting funds from developers and then paying it out to, to storage node operators. Do you see people Makes running sense. these nodes in AWS? We don't see a lot of people running them in AWS. Some people run them in in places like Hetzner, ultimately the, the, the trick with trying to run a node in, in AWS is that's one of the most expensive places to run storage in the universe, right? And so if you're trying to run some kind of a, uh, a, uh, a thing where you're trying to make, make money on that, if you're getting paid a percentage of we pay on egress, but you're paying Amazon $90 a terabyte for egress, 
which is where their their fees start, you'll you'll immediately be underwater. But there are there are data center providers like Hetzner, where you know for five bucks a month you just get X amount of storage, X amount of bandwidth, and right. you can do the arbitrage there and, and make the money on it. The overwhelming majority of our operators are using recycled hardware. They're in their own data centers. They're in their own facilities, right? And and they're effectively they're using storage as a way to sort of compete with the hyperscalers. I mean, there's there's the dominant mode of trying to go head to head with with Amazon has been go get a billion dollars, build a couple of data centers, price aggressively, and try and build a brand over the course of uh, the time frame from which you start until when you run out of money competing against Amazon. And this is really the first credible way to say, oh, instead of playing the game their way and doing all of the, the CapEx expenditures you described earlier, of building a billion dollars worth of hardware and infrastructure and salaries and all of that good stuff, you can actually just crowdsource the Airbnb of hard drives and get an aggregated same amount of volume, but without all of that upfront money. And tapping into all of that latent capacity all over the world actually creates a more private, durable, performance service, again, without that huge expenditure up front. So it's one of those interesting things where decentralization has emerged as a credible path to disrupting what is an industry with an incredibly large moat and uh, a, a, a very, very flat curve when it comes to uh, prices dropping on cloud storage services, even though the underlying hardware has followed more uh, pretty aggressively. Yeah, that is very interesting. Uh, I can almost see opportunities where people are pooling their capital and resources together to go ahead and run these storage nodes and stuff. Could be could be very interesting. We we see quite a bit of that. We see uh, there's there's a, a guy in uh, Europe whose whose business model is kind of 3D printing these uh, uh, cases with Raspberry Pis and hard drives in them, and then he just goes around and finds businesses and homes and drops these in there and gets a share of the uh, the, the profits going. And it's just, uh, it's really efficient from him from a capital perspective. He's got it all modeled out. And it's uh, it, it's basically just adding tremendous amount of capacity over time. So what's he getting from them? Like bandwidth? Mm-hmm. Yep. Going to places that already have a fixed fee for bandwidth and they're, they're underutilizing that bandwidth and they're actually able to monetize that bandwidth in a, in a really interesting pattern. And yeah. And for us, the network really thrives on a, very large number of relatively small storage nodes. So we are much better off with 1,025 terabyte nodes versus two or three two petabyte nodes, just to get that parallelism, just to get that durability, that data distribution. And so, you know, it, it's it's exactly aligned with the shape that the network needs to be to be most successful. Like I heard you say that you pay people uh, roughly $150 per terabyte, if I understood correct. So do you pay them storage token equivalent in U.S. dollars or? Yes. Okay. Yep. So we we try and, and today take the volatility out uh, and, and introduce predictability. So we charge $4 a terabyte a month. You can pay in storage token, but it doesn't matter what the, the current price of the storage token is. We abstract away that, that volatility. We abstract away the uh, that price because nobody wants to go, well, I, I, I bought... $4 worth of capacity, but now it's worth six. Oh, wait, now it's worth two. Now it's worth seven. Like it, tracking that, there's no CFO in the world that's going to put up with it, right? They want, that's why you go to a, a, a cloud service and you go, okay, so it's predictable. It's OpEx. I understand what my bill is going to be. And 
uh, it, one of the nice things about storage is you don't have that that sort of 15% float of other things that you get in the hyperscale providers, right? So there's just not that, oh, I got charged for using multi-part uh, upload and I got charged for a bazillion API transactions and all of a sudden I have all of these extra fees. Um, you don't have that. You have really good predictable pricing and good predictable costing, right? So someone can contribute a service to the network and know what it's going to get paid. Now, in the future, we, we would absolutely love to begin introducing things like marketplace constructs so that people can set the price on their storage node and have different tiers of performance and you know, different, different characteristics for different use cases. Uh, but today, it's, uh, we just made it as dead simple as we can. That is very, very interesting. Like removing the volatility uh, makes it easier for people to also go spin up their nodes because they know like what they can expect. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious. So nothing on this show is financial advice, uh, but I but I do like to ask what what is what what has to happen or what will happen to make the the token price go up, right? I mean, what are the dynamics that affect the the value of the token is that just you know more utilization of the of the network with a fixed supply of tokens or sort of can you guys speak to that as a you know as a quote investment uh, in in the token so so that's one of the things that we don't like to uh, talk about so for us we're really focused on the utility of the network and the utility of the token in that ecosystem and we've taken a really uh, strong stance in terms of our governance the controls we've put in place and and all all the steps that we've taken to make sure that that we're not only running a good quality storage service but also a well-run business from a, a governance and compliance perspective and really the um you know the, the it, it's fair to ask because there's there's a lot of of sort of hype in the uh, in the crypto space in terms of looking at tokens in terms of are they investments or not but there's a whole category of tokens that are also straight up uh, utility tokens and you see that a lot in the infrastructure as a service space where these things really have a, a, a strong usage pattern and, and they're designed specifically for that purpose versus an investment vehicle at all. Yep. Okay. No, that's fair. Uh, is there, is there any, do you guys share any of the stats on the, you know, on the, on the transaction volume, on the number of tokens burned, you know, any of that stuff on the network that, that people can follow along? We have a, a ton of, of information to be uh, incredibly transparent about the usage of the network. So there are a number of, uh, of APIs and dashboards and things like that that sort of public, publish different aspects of information. If you look at the Web3 index, there's, a, there's an aspect of, of just sort of the, uh, the revenue generation that's tracked by Web3 index. There is a set of dashboards that sort of track network utilization. So uh, everything from how many storage nodes are there and in what countries are they located and how full are they and all of that good stuff. One of them I think is storagenet.info and it's uh, it, that's a, a publicly operated site, storjnet.info. That's a good place to see a lot of data about the st- from the storage node perspective, what the shape of the network is and, and what utilization is like. And then there's also uh, another one that's a um, it's a really nice uh, Grafana dashboard actually put together by the community. Oh, cool. I've got to find the link for that one. But yeah, I mean it's it's. Uh, All right, it's, we can share that in the uh, in the show notes. That's that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah, that. uh, storage s t u r j s t a t s storage stats info. Okay. So yeah, right so every everything that you'd want to find out is probably available on one of those three sites in terms of 
what's going on, how busy is it, how utilized is it. And then, of course, if you join our community at forum.storage.io, you can talk directly to our storage node operators and, and really get a lot more insight in terms of what it's like to be an operator and what it's like to use the network. Well, that's fantastic. So uh, I, as we wrap up here, I was just going to ask uh, where people can go if they're interested in learning more. And I think uh, you've, you've given them some some great resources there uh, in, in, in addition to, uh, I'm sure, your website and Discord server and all that, all that great stuff. Of so, course. John, Dominic, uh, thank you both very much for, for being here. I really appreciate uh, the, the conversation and, and uh, look forward to keeping track of, uh, of your progress over the months and years ahead. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for having us and letting us uh, share a little bit of information with your listeners. And uh, yeah, this is a great opportunity. So thank you. Uh, you're welcome. All right, guys. Much appreciated. Thank you for being here. Yep. Take care.